Welcome to Voices from the Vernacular Music Center. I'm Roger Landis. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is a podcast from the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University. The Vernacular Music Center is a center for teaching, research, and advocacy in the world's vernacular musics and dance. That is, musics and dance which are learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory. In this third series, produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts, we talk about how the VMC engages with music and dance from around the world, and about the connections and the history and the community meaning of these art forms. We hear from players, scholars, dancers, builders, and listeners about times and places and people, and together we discover and celebrate the webs of human meaning which connect all of them. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to continue with our series of guest interviews, talking to friends and professional acquaintances from across the worlds of music, dance, theater, and the humanities about why and how they do what they do. Professor Genevieve Durham de Cesaro serves as dance faculty and interim dean of the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts here at TTU. She's a longtime friend of the VMC, and we thought it would be interesting to get her perspective, both as creative artist and also as an administrative leader. Genevieve, we like to start these guest episodes by inviting people like yourself to reflect upon how the idea of the vernacular, whatever that means to you, intersects with your own work. But just before that, maybe we could start out by asking you about your day job and about the life events that brought you to that gig. Sure. Thank you, Roger. And thank you, Chris. Uh, I'll begin by answering that, that latter question. My day job presently is to serve as interim dean in the JT and Margaret Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts. It's a job that I've been doing for about a year now. Uh, prior to that, I served as vice provost for academic affairs at Texas Tech University and moved into that position from a full-time gig in the dance program at TTU. Um, what brought me to my current position uh, is a combination of my experiences in the arts and higher education and in administration and higher education. I'm fortunate to um, be a part of a, a group of colleagues here at Texas Tech that have afforded me every opportunity to challenge uh, myself, my capabilities, and I'm very privileged to serve the way I do now. Um, it has enabled me to be back in the arts full time and to give back to the college and colleagues and students um, who have made me who I am. Yeah, I'm uh, also really happy to have Genevieve here on our video and audio connection, because I first came to know Genevieve really some time ago, um, when we were both somewhat younger, certainly I was younger, felt younger. And uh, Genevieve at that time, as I recall it, and if I'm uh, overstating the case, please just allow me to sing your praises. Genevieve was essentially engaged in building a dance program here at Texas Tech, kind of from the ground up. And I remember when I first read some of the accounts of what she was doing as part of her own uh, administrative work, but also creative work as a dance maker and a dance teacher, I remember thinking, this person actually could do that. This person could actually kind of lay the foundation and then put in the bricks and mortar that made that happen. And by God, if you didn't do it, Gee, so we're really grateful. Well, thanks very much, Chris. I certainly didn't do it alone. Um, and that goes for, for 
all of all of the things that I, I understand as my record um, between that time, which was quite a few many years ago, and now. Um, I work best when I'm working with engaged and supportive colleagues. I think we all we all do, and uh, I do have the the great privilege of continuing that streak in this current current job. Roger, I think your first question, which I nearly forgot, was to elaborate on my own understanding of the vernacular, particularly as it relates to my my discipline and my experiences within it. You're nodding your head, so I have not gotten it wrong. Okay, so. Um, dance and the vernacular is a complex and challenging relationship. I would offer that from a personal perspective, I find understandings of what vernacular means within dance to, to differ wildly from person to person. Um, really, I think having to do in large part with that individual person's experiences with dance, um, in childhood maybe in, in K-12 education, and I'll position my own experience as central to my own understanding of it. Um, I grew up in a really small town in Texas, and we did not, within, say, 30 miles or so, have available studios for dance training outside of um, the public school system, and the town was small enough at that time that there was one elementary school, one middle school, and one high school. Uh, so um, we didn't have dance prior to ninth grade. It just did not exist and was not accessible unless um, a student had a means of getting uh, getting down the road 30 miles to um, a, an extracurricular opportunity. So like a number of, um, of people I went to school with, I was exposed to and became a participant in dance through my public education. That's really different and no less or more valuable from someone who has um, engaged with the dance in the context of a professional or pre-professional training studio from a very early age. So the way that I became acquainted with dance very much informs how I understand the use of the term vernacular. Yeah, I, if I can follow up on that a little bit, um, thank you for for nuancing that for us because that's a tricky word, vernacular, and it means different things in different contexts and to different people and even to different disciplines. And I remember our mutual friend, Bill Ballinger, who served as director of the School of Music for quite some number of years. I don't think he'll mind me saying that he would occasionally question that word and whether anyone would recognize it. And we would have back and forth conversations about what it meant and why it was the right word. And no, we don't want to say it's non-Western. And no, we don't want to say it's world music. We don't want to say this, you know. But really, the locution that I was coming from at the time that I proposed the term was comes out of language and the study of language and the differentiation, say, in medieval Europe between the high art language of Latin, which was used for conventional literacy and reading and writing, the official business of the Catholic Church, versus uh, old French or Old English or High Deutsch, which were about functional communication, like how do you get business done in the street? And because both Roger and I have that experience of learning most of the music that we know using these older methods, these folk tradition methods, oral oral methods, we were trying to find a way to articulate that vision of learning and of passing along learning and of passing along artistic insights more by demonstration and imitation. Paradoxically, 
it was pointed out to me by a number of my friends who come from your world. Uh, sorry, um, that's what we do all the time, every day in studio class. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, I think your, your reference to the terms high and low art or high and low music, high and low dance, uh, are, are well understood as common descriptors of, of how vernacular approaches to art making are situated on that continuum of high, low, it's pretty typical for someone to hear the word vernacular and think, Oh, that's low art. That's low dance. Maybe not without meaning to imply a hierarchy between high and low, but certainly that implication is there just via the, the terms themselves. Um, what I really want to probe into a little bit is uh, the idea of, of codification, attaching a, a written down language to an art form and how doing that and the way that, that codifying in, in written form dance, and I'll use dance because that's, that's where I'm situated, codifying dance in written form immediately implies um, exclusion. There, that, that written form is not going to be av available to everyone. And it's not a matter, a matter only of written literacy or illiteracy. It's a matter of language and culture. So um, there is a distinction between dances that are written down and, I'll, I'll, and dances that do not have a written codified set of terms, set of expectations, behaviors. Um, that, I think, is a, a fairly innocuous way to describe types of dance. Here's a type of dance that has a, has a, is codified, has a written, a written handbook, for lack of a better word. And then here's a type of dance that does not. That, from my perspective, that's not particularly hierarchical. It's a fairly... Um, um, uh, again, innocuous way to describe those, those terms, but we don't often go to the lengths to say that we simply say it's vernacular or not. And that is where, from my perspective, we get to a place where, oh, if it's vernacular, it actually doesn't belong in, um, a, a, a place of higher education, uh, because we are only about those things which are written down, codified, and to some extent exclusive. That's, uh, certainly, um, I don't think it would be a secret to anyone who knows me that I, I, I reject the notion that education and educational institutions are great equalizers. Uh, and so from that perspective, um, it, it, it's very logical to me that, there, that the way that we um, accept certain disciplines has a lot to do with whether those disciplines are written down and have a codified vocabulary. It's, it's very much the same in the music world, although often not recognized as such. And that's why Chris and I are constantly um, inviting people who are, are interested in interacting with the vernacular to, to consider process rather than product. And when in music, when you start writing it down, particularly when you get a score, a very complex score, then it's natural to kind of concentrate on the product and, and it has a, a stabilizing or it, it can create stasis at, at certain levels. Whereas unwritten oral tradition is constantly changing and will never not change. And of course, both of these things exist irrespective of style. Um, 
we could talk to any of our colleagues at the School of Music who teach uh, studio lessons, and they'll tell you that there, there's a, an enormous vernacular and oral component to the to the education, um, to their teaching. But trying to take, especially as a, as a response to the way Western aesthetics has existed, take the emphasis off the product or the artifact and put it on the process and how we come together uh, to create those processes is something that we're particularly interested in. And so uh, that might lead into a conversation about the role of a dance movement program within a fine arts college and a university community. You know, Roger, it just so happens that I love to talk about this. Okay, I want to do the, the latter part first. The role of a dance program in a larger university community um, cannot be understated. Uh, and the reason I wanted to, to go larger university community first is because, generally speaking, the larger university university community has less familiarity with things that have to do with the body, with kinesthetic knowledge, um, kinesthetic value, with kinesthetic learning. And dance is a very effective way uh, to, to bring that experience and understanding of the role of kinesthetic learning and education to a larger population. Um, so that's the first part. Uh, in addition to all of the incredible things that dance provides um, on its own as a standalone art form, uh, uh, ways to intuit, ways to communicate, ways to be responsive and understand, ways to make meaning of, ways to shift worldviews and transform cultural conversa conversations. Dance does all of that. Uh, that. All that stated, and it's all very valuable, um, I, I come back to the centrality of dance in its ability to help a larger student and faculty population understand the relevance of the physical body to education. So that's the, that's the university part. Now, the, the relation, the value of dance to a fine arts college, that's a, it's a little bit lower hanging in that, um, uh, we, we want to be very considerate that in, in understanding our arts, we are attending to the arts as they, as they exist, um, not only external from us, but internal to us. And dance is an excellent way to investigate that perspective. Um, there, so that, that's my short answer. The value of dance to a fine arts college is not only, not only the value of the discipline itself, its history, um, its aesthetics, its, its people, but really the way that it expands our understanding of arts to some to things that can be internal to us and expressed using our own physical forms. That's what I wanted to say. I could really go on for like 10 minutes, but I won't. So there you go. You are preaching to the converted, ma'am, and we're happy to hear you say those things <laughs> completely. But it's at the same time, it's actually a bit of a challenge, a good challenge. Dance issues, I would say, I think I can generalize about music and especially about music departments within fine arts colleges. Dance issues, I think, um, an understated, perhaps under-remarked, but very real challenge to music programs because I attended uh, one of the one of the major conservatories in North America, certainly the largest enrollment of a conservatory in North America. 
And I came into it as Roger came into his university training as somebody who was trained in vernacular music, particularly in dance music, right? So we were both accustomed to the interplay between between sound and movement, how rich that is and the artistic synergy that is generated, um, which is not so readily present in university conservatory music programs. And in fact, sadly, it has sometimes occurred much less thankfully than it used to. But there have been times when people, students enrolled in university music programs have injured themselves because they have persisted in their performance practice in a way that was physically harmful. And there has been, I don't think I'm, this is no revelation to say that there has been sometimes in some idioms of music taught within conservatories, a divide or a disconnect between the body and body health and body knowledge and a more intellectualized, contemplative, and cultivated approach about living up to the standards of whatever the art object is. And so the challenge that I see dance issuing in a tremendously healthy way, in a way that music programs should be challenged, is how do we integrate the body, as you have said? How do we how do we find ways to use the body's capacity to teach us things, not only for health and wellness, but also in terms of artistry? And dancers, I think, know that in ways that musicians have still, many musicians, and I include myself in this, have still to learn. That's a really, um, that's a really astute observation. And I would offer in response that I think that is a, an accurate statement in some contexts. Unfortunately, we are still very much within a model of higher ed- education um, in our country in particular, that prioritizes mastery of the body. And I'm talking specifically about dance programs. You know, dance programs in higher education are, are relatively new, um, a little more than 100 years old since the establishment of the first dance program at an institution of higher education in this country. And, and a number of them um, continue to... Uh, assert the importance of mastery, physical mastery in their curricula, in their programs. Um, Let me offer that I I don't want to disparage that approach. It is an approach that is, is necessary for students who are intending to pursue particular types of careers in dance. I get it. That is necessary. I think it can be taught safely when there is, um, uh, an, an attending to ensuring that the student knows why mastery of the body is is privileged. That's really, really important, but not infrequently that's not attended to. And so students come through a program um, uh, believing that the body is something to be disciplined, to be made and formed toward um, a particular ideal that is often a constructed myth. There's this wonderful article called "The Myth of the Myth of the Ideal Body." I think it's by Jill Green, um, and I love to teach it when I teach pedagogy because it really articulates well. She really articulates well the way that our a lot of dance training has been built on trying to 
um, force female bodies to um, to reach a, an ideal, a myth. And and the reason that's really important is because we're never going to reach it. Um, so we're always going to position ourselves as as woman dancers, as female dancers, as not quite good enough. That is going to convince us that we do not have the authority to move into leadership positions, to take ownership of our own choices and our own voices. Now that's I, I just really opened up a large worm can there, and I'll backtrack a bit out and state that relevant to the point you were making, Chris, I think dance programs have the capacity to instill among colleges of fine arts in particular, um, um, maybe ways of, uh, reinterpreting, um, the physical knowledge, physical health, as it relates to practice, as it relates to, um, goals, goal setting, uh, but I, I, I don't think that that's uniformly practiced in all dance programs. Yeah, I find that really, really persuasive, Genevieve, because I have some of the most rewarding experiences I've had in facilitating student learning and uh, through doing and collaborative learning has been when I've been able to have dancers and musicians in a room together. Um, often even when those are circumstances of uh, where it feels psychologically safe and creatively safe and people can experiment and own what they don't know as well as what they have to offer one another, it can be challenging even with very well-intended and good energy to communicate across uh, those two art forms, the, the movement art form and the sound art form, partly because we perceive the world differently. Some of it has to do with the fact that we have different terminology but very often it's because our experience of our bodies is so mm-hmm. radically mm-hmm. different like mm-hmm. i i i see i'm self i'm self critical about musicians who are who are don't know their bodies or are afraid of their bodies or as mm-hmm. you're putting it mm-hmm. battle with their bodies and i say this with great love and respect for the many dance makers that i know sometimes i have known some dance students to be kind of afraid of music making like oh i'm not a musician i can't sing i can't play i you know and oh, sure. and there's a there's a kind of bridge building which when the musicians and the dancers are in a space together whether it's a university studio or a pub in ireland or a festival in france there's a kind of bridge building that happens in which people are empowered because the other art form begins to seem open to their engagement. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That really does. Listening to our conversation to this point, I was listening and thinking about um, the many vernacular traditions that we know and and some of which we participate in, which are truly integrative uh, with music and dance. And I'm wondering if you see an opportunity there uh, or if it's actually happening in in uh, uh, university dance and music programs. Is there a is there room for an integrative approach, or is is that happening? Yes, to both. Um, and let me be a little bit more specific there. I I'm I'm going to focus in on one particular type of integrative integrative excuse me music and dance because I think a number of potential viewers might have some familiarity with this. I think it's it's broadly understood enough. And that's going to be West African mu- music and dance. These are forms that coexist, um, you know, frequently as, as a, 
a professor in higher education, if I want to have um, a West African dance specialist come into a residency here, I have to have a West African drummer as well. I cannot have one without the other. They are inseparable. And to attempt to um, to introduce the music, excuse me, the dance without the music is is um, detrimental to the art form. So we don't want to do that. We also don't want to assume that we have a right to 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 appropriate a tradition um, without expertise and into a space without really thinking about why we're doing so. Why do we want to introduce students to approaches to dance that are integrative with music? What's the purpose there? How does it fit in the curriculum? And then how are we going to ensure that we have the, the expertise, the authority to bring that to a curriculum in, um, in an authentic way in a way that that services the form rather than than disservices the form, and helps to establish the importance and relevance of um, vernacular forms to 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 dance at large. That's the first part. The second part is what's going on now. Well, certainly some of what I just spoke about there. Are, Ours is not among them presently, although I think we could get there. There are some dance programs that are expansive enough, and more than some, um, that, that they have moved to um, more inclusion of integrative forms into their curricula. They have the ability and the resources to have on full faculty uh, individuals and groups who are specialists in these types uh, of dances and approaches to dance. And I'm saying dance, I mean dance and music or dance and art, dance and something else. Uh, and that is fantastic. Um, I mentioned the word resources and I want to just point up that resources are required. This cannot be done for free. It's not you calling up your buddy that you met 10 years ago and saying, come and do this one thing. Um, this really is resource intensive. And, and is it something that should be funded? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Um, before I go on to the second part, I think maybe, uh, Chris would like to insert something. Well, since, since you give me that opening, thanks. I, 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 I want to hear the second part, but then maybe after you've had a chance to speak to that, I want to loop back to what, what are the impediments to that kind of integrative oh, inclusion? Yeah. But your second part first. Oh, no, I think I should do your question first. Okay. Um, and then we'll shift over. Yeah, I'll do the question first. So, re th so great. Space, space, money, time, and um, I'm going to say imposed curricular requirements are impediments, not just to adopting and um, integrating um, these, these different approaches to art making in our curricula, but to a number of things. Uh, so I'll, I'll use a hypothetical here. Let's say I've got a, a large university. The university has no dance program. And the um, university says, okay, we want to make a dance program, but it's going to be really, it, it, we only have money for this, this, and this. Do I say, absolutely not? Or do I say, yeah, let me start there. I'm going to take your, your resources and do these three things. And then over the course of 50 years, we're going to expand enough to have a curriculum that's, that, that is inclusive and prioritizes um, vernacular and, and, and non-vernacular approaches to dance making uh, equally. 
I'm going to say yes. I'm going to take the resources available and build out. And that's what, um, geez, almost any institution that I'm familiar with has done. Some are at year 51 and some are at year two. And that's why we see this continuum of curricula in dance programs in higher education across our country. So resources is a huge impediment. Um, I'll also note here that when I said um, imposed curricular standards, what I really mean is that there are um, many different bodies that govern what must constitute a an academic credential, an academic degree. And frequently programs are at the mercy of those, those standards. So if a standard uh, stipulates that I cannot have more than X number of credit hours in my degree program, I've, I'm going to have to work within that. And sometimes... Um, Sometimes vernacular approaches end up being cut first because they have the least amount of time in the tradition of dance and higher education. What has the most amount of time? Ballet and modern as, as the movement-based forms. Um, and that's, that is, that's not a value statement. It is just a fact. So as we, as we press on into the second century of dance programs in higher education, we do have an opportunity to reconsider what's cut when we have to give something up. Why are we choosing to give something up just because it's, we've always given it up? I don't think we're in the same place that we were in 1980. Um, and, and that's really, really important. I also want to point up that uh, universities won't exist without students to attend them. So in many ways, um, a curricula is also responsive to the students that make up its uh, population, the population it serves. And that's really, really, really important because populations are very different um, in the Midwest than on the East Coast than in Baja than in Texas. And we, we need to be, um, do we need to be straight-jacketed by that? Absolutely not. Do we need to understand the importance and relevance of it? Absolutely so I think the impediments to the kind of inclusion you're talking about, they, they are, they're significant. Are they insurmountable? No, but we need to be aware of them and talk about them. Otherwise, we're just going to keep making the same decisions we've always made. What is your prognosis for, say, the next 20 years? Um, give me a little bit more context. In, here at Texas Tech, dance in general in higher ed? Dance in general in higher ed. Oh, boy. My prognosis is that um, we will continue to see a fairly rapid expansion um, within curricula in institutions that right now are resourceful. I, I think that we're going to continue to see those institutions capitalize on their abilities to expand their curricula, to expand what they can, can provide to students, to faculty, to their communities. I think that we are going to see in dance what we see in higher education at large, and that is smaller institutions are going to continue to struggle, um, that we, we, are, we are going to continue to be faced with those same questions about how are we going to make everything fit. So I don't want that to come across as um, um, a, a, a doomsday scenario. I think there's a positive spin. For, our, for smaller programs, this reality, uh, which again, I, I, I would offer it mirrors the reality of higher education in smaller programs. So let's say small liberal arts colleges is a great type of context to think about here. If those aren't going to grow expansively, if there's not going to be 
a huge investment in small small private liberal arts colleges in the next 20 years, there's like, likely not going to be this, that, the investment in their dance programs either. So that means we will best serve our programs and our students if we, as a discipline in our professional organizations nationally, start talking about this. It's got to be at the forefront of our conversations. We can't always just say, well, it's great to be, you know, UCLA or Cal State Long Beach or NYU, but I'm out here in West Texas, so poor me. That does nothing. So let's talk about how can we make the how can we make the most of the our situation? How can we capitalize on our relationships with larger universities? How can we reciprocate those because they can also capitalize on their relationships with us to be sure. And if you don't think it's unfair of me to to ask you, when when you ask uh, how I wanted you to answer that question, and I and I chose one of two choices, can we now have the other choice? Can you give us a prognosis for our school? Oh gosh, for dance at Texas Tech. Ah, uh, it's really hard because I continue to locate myself firmly in the dance program, <laughs> so I'm trying to pull myself out and do that ten thousand foot view. Um, so, you know, I think actually um, that the program is really almost at an inflection point. Um, and that is to say that the program has, has expanded its degree program offerings significantly in the last several years. And with that expansion comes, um, comes a, a major reflection on what we have the capability to provide and provide well. That is the kind of opportunity that is going to allow us to redefine what we prioritize. What are we teaching and why? Why are we maintaining this particular tradition over this one? So we're right there. That's where we are. And I think we're going to be in that why stage for an, a, another year or so. Um, then I think where we'll be is um, probably shifting uh, some, some ways that the curriculum has existed, curricula have existed for the last decade. And that's okay. I, I, I was responsible for a lot of the curriculum in the BA and dance as it stands now. Should it be revised? Yes, it should. This is really important. All of us should attend to curricular and review and revision regularly. And I think right now in dance, we are finding ourselves at a, just a really unique time. Um, and we're asking those questions. What are we doing and why? Why are we doing this? Who is it serving? Yeah, thank you, Genevieve. I'm, I so appreciate the way that you're saying that and the way that you are framing that as um, as an inflection point, as a point of a, a period of decision, which in fact provides opportunities for new growth, because music, especially music in a kind of conservatory-based research one university setting, faces similar challenges. Uh, we can't just keep adding more, even though historically music in conservatories has been quite quite hierarchized and oh. has prioritized some things and minoritized other things. We cannot address those things those omissions simply by adding back in or adding for the first time those minoritized idioms or art forms or ways of being an artist. Something has to give. And from not from the 10,000 foot level, but sort of from the trenches, we, I'll just say, I, people like myself, we do sometimes get mired in, okay, what resistance will we have to battle in order to say, we're going to take those three credits out of the requirements and those three credits out of the requirements so that we can have six credits to add in some of these things that we want to do in, in a really granular way. And I know you 
done this kind of thing for years yourself, G, in a granular way, it takes a kind of philosophical intention and then a really day-to-day nuts and bolts turning the knobs one by one in slow and incremental ways. It takes a lot of stamina for which I give people in leadership positions like yourself a whole lot of credit. Well, that's really nice of you. I don't, I don't know that all that credit should go to me, but I'll tell you this. Um, the kind of approach you're talking about is it never, it never starts, let me say it this way, the kind of approach you're talking about only happens after a curriculum is built. It very, very rarely is the approach taken when, when developing a curriculum, curriculum for the first time. So I'll use the dance program as an example. Um, that curriculum, again, one of the undergraduate degrees is, is at least 10 years old, probably closer to 16. And, uh, and it, it is a big part maybe le- less is and what and more was because I haven't been full-time in the dance program for about seven years. It was a really big part of my identity. My identity was tied to the curriculum largely because I had a lot of input in it. Um, so I understood part of my own worth as the worth of the curriculum. This is very common when people, and we want them to be engaged, and when they engage in curricular development, their identities can become embedded in that. So when you talk about revising it and shifting it, if we don't also talk about how this is maybe being understood as questioning someone's worth and value, we're going to run into a lot of defensiveness and a lot of posturing. And that's going to make what could be a one or two year process, an eight or 10 year process. And I, I think that's not I think that's just a reality. And have I been defensive and postured? Oh yeah, so much. Um, and it's taken me a long time to not feel a little bit hurt that decisions that I made about the curriculum, they aren't considered the best decisions anymore. I mean, that can be really hurtful. That's part of my identity. So I, I want to offer that, that the challenges in curricular revision not only have to do with with this discussion we we are having about vernacular, about privilege and hierarchy, but they also have to do with personal identity and I, and artistic identity and worth and value. Um, and sometimes I don't know that we think about that as much as we should when we're in the very initial phases of review and revision. Now, there was a second part of a question that I was supposed to get to. I don't know. I, I kind of just, I'm okay with just sort of sitting with that remarkable insight, Genevieve, because so often, you know, when we're doing nuts and bolts and trying to do the right thing and trying to dismantle systemic injustice and trying to be more inclusive, we do think in terms of our accrediting agencies and the existing history and the clientele that we are serving and that their expectations are and preparing them for professional lives. And you've just said very eloquently, in a way I just kind of want to sit with myself, let us not forget that many people have many kinds of investment at many particular historical moments in an institution or in a curriculum or in an art form itself. And that if we are moving to different understandings or newer understandings or revising old understandings, it is not only strategic, but it is also sensitive and compassionate to remember that there are people, there are human beings behind those 
historical moments and decisions, and that those revisions should be undertaken with a sense, with an understanding of the humans behind them. So thank you for saying that, because I think it, I certainly don't think about it enough, and I think it needs to be thought about more. So thanks. Yeah, you are welcome. I don't think about it enough either. And it's helpful for me to have conversations like this to remind me of how important that is. So um, I'm thinking about perhaps a larger question. As you yourself have transitioned into a new role at our university, perhaps you'd care to share your vision for leadership, a strategic vision in a fine arts college and how we might seek transformation in a post-COVID world. Oh, gosh, Roger. <laughs> uh, I want to state first that I don't, I, I don't think we're post-COVID. Um, I don't think we're close. I know you weren't suggesting that. So it's hard for me to, to think past that. Uh, it is an, a, a crisis of immediacy. And sometimes it's really challenging to um, imagine what post-COVID might look and feel like. Uh, with that stated, I would offer that I don't, I don't assume or suppose that we would simply return to what we understood as normal or familiar um, once we are in a post-COVID place. I think doing so would be a great misstep. We've learned a lot in our arts locally, nationally, internationally, about, about what we can do, um, how we can remain connected. I, I think our communities and our, our audiences have learned a lot about our value. I heard this great piece on, I think it was on NPR this morning. I was making lunches for my kids and uh, NPR was covering the reopening of some theaters on Broadway, which maybe just happened yesterday. And that I think the production that was mentioned in the story was Hades Town. And the reporter uh, was describing how the, the performance was interrupted at least 10 times with standing ovations that <laughs> went on and on um, because of how incredibly meaningful it is to return to live performance. Uh, so we should not make the mistake of simply returning to what we knew as live performance pre-pandemic, pre-COVID, that would be that would that would be a um, that would be a misstep, as I as I stated previously. Uh, in terms of what I envision as strate strategic leadership toward a post-COVID moment, my sense is that leadership um, must be hopeful. Leadership must also leadership in the arts specifically, so I'll position leadership uh, within my own experience, leadership must unfailingly champion the arts as central to education, as central to community health and well-being, as central to personal development. We cannot let go our grasp on asserting that centrality right now, even though we're trying to simultaneously lead our colleagues, each other, our students, our arts through, it almost feels like one crisis to the next. Um, we cannot let go of the importance of asserting our centrality. Um, 
And when we come out on the other side of this, we'll be better positioned by what we learned in the last 18 months. We'll be better positioned to deliver our arts to more broadly in a more accessible way to broader groups of people. I think that's, that's probably the, the best, biggest thing that we learned is that we can do that successfully. We can make ourselves more accessible in a conventional or traditional format. No, absolutely not. But can we do it? Absolutely. Yes. Um, and, and I want to lead with that in mind. I want to lead with an eye toward, um, how we can take what we understood as familiar, uh, and normal and, and springboard off of that to, uh, a vision for, for the arts that is uh, larger, that is more available, that is more meaningful, provides more opportunities for engagement. That's what I want to get to. Um, and I remembered that second thing I was supposed to talk about like 17 minutes ago. Do you want me to talk about it now? <laughs> so I think Roger, you'd asked a question about, um, how integrated art forms and specifically music and dance exist at, if at all in, in dance and higher education generally. And then, um, um, could I talk maybe about some specific examples of those? And, and I started with this, um, gosh, it was kind of like a diatribe. I'll call it a diatribe on, um, West African dance and music. But what I want to offer is that a lot of dance programs that are maybe, um, resource strapped that wouldn't have the space or the personnel financial means to bring in, um, additions to the curricula. A lot of those dance programs teach something called improvisation. And dance improvisation is, is, it is a learned skill. It is a, a, um, a movement form uh, similar to any other learned movement form like jazz or tap, hip hop, ballet. Um, and nearly all dance programs include a course called improvisation or something similar in their curricula. And this is a perfect example of a course that is, excuse me, content that is designed to be integrative. Improvisational movement, um, when combined with improvisational sound scores, is incredibly fulfilling and I think reaches the greatest potential for what improvisational dance can be. So this is a great way for almost any dance program to investigate these possibilities and to provide students with that lived experience of an integrated dance, a dance and music form. Um, I think it's, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to really position, position the, the value of integrated approaches within a dance curriculum without having to significantly expand the curriculum, to significantly expand the faculty, for example. So I just wanted to offer that I remembered that. Yeah. So what that suggests is that part of uh, artful reimagining of curricula and of the goals of curricula, it can be very visible. Like we will now have the following new courses with new names and numbers, but it can also be complemented by an equally uh, nuanced and uh, strategically sound way of reconceiving courses already in the inventory. Like, as you were saying, 
if a if if most dance programs have an improvisation class, don't invent a new class. Reinvent what the content of and the delivery method and maybe some of the um, instruction of that might entail. And that strikes me as immediately actionable. That's something that that programs and I'm obviously I'm thinking of music programs who can do the same kind of thing. So you make a really good point in that immediately actionable um, statement. Th those are things that are immediately actionable. Frequently in higher education, I think we take the position that any change is going to take maybe seven or eight years to affect. And that's <laughs> that's a kind of a cop-out uh, and a reason that sometimes we use not to take any action at all. But I'd offer that there are immediately actionable steps that we can take as educators to um, be more be more deliberate about introducing our students to um, less traditional ways of knowing and doing in our arts. I'm going to say less traditional because a, a lot of dance programs are still structured on traditional ways of knowing and understanding not only um, the human body, but also uh, uh, the, the, the hierarchy of dance, uh, as in how, how dance is valued. So this is an opportunity for us to reconsider existing course content in a way that questions those traditions. It doesn't mean we, we do away with the traditions. It just means we, we talk about them for a while. We figure out why are we, why are we upholding them? Why are we continuing with these? And we may have a good reason to decide that we want to continue with those. And I just want to say on the record that, that that's totally great. Having a dance program that can articulate a reason for maintaining a particular tradition, uh, there, there is zero issue with that. But you got to say it. You have to say it out loud. You have to put it in your written materials and publicize it, talk about it with prospective students and their parents. You have to say that out loud. Otherwise, no one knows why they're being taught what they're taught. And then we get to a place where students become disengaged because they don't understand the purpose um, of the curriculum they're, they're learning. You know, Genevieve, that's such a powerful, seemingly self-evident part of education and of educational leadership that, that we make sure that students understand why they're learning what they're learning, that we explicitly own not only the repertoires and the techniques and the traditions we're teaching, but also the connotations and implications and complexities of those things. And that we say those things explicitly so that students do understand not only the tools and material they're acquiring, but also the contexts and the intentions behind that learning, because that empowers students, of course. So if I may pivot back to you in your role as an educational leader, if you were found yourself in the position, just hypothetically, you found yourself in the position of speaking to a prospective dance student at Texas Tech, and the student asked about, well, what is this thing vernacular dance anyway, and and why do I need to know that? Do you have a do you have your own Genevieve Durham de Cesaro's take on that? On I that sure do. Yes, uh, and thank you for the opportunity. So. What I, what I would say to the student, what I have said to a number of students, um, is is that almost any any form of dance could be considered vernacular by different groups of people, even the things that we think are so codified that they're universal, like ballet, for example. Um, certainly, ballet would be considered vernacular to groups of people um, who who are not familiar with it. the The thing here is the importance of vernacular dance is not adding one or two or five different forms to a curriculum. It's understanding that the word vernacular 
is subjective and that excluding the vernacular means that we're limiting the options that we provide to our students. We are limiting their abilities to be successful in the jobs that we don't know exist right now. We are limiting their understandings of their potential. Why would we not want to include vernacular dance if I take the position that vernacular dance can capture just about everything and I reject the position that vernacular dance is a term that describes certain kinds of forms that are traditionally traditionally performed by non-white, non-European peoples, then I'm going to embrace the idea of vernacular as capable of, of holding everything within it. And my curriculum becomes less about names, less about modern, or less about uh, jazz, less about tap, and more about purpose. I want to create a course, create a curriculum that is going to prepare my students to be successful in dance when they graduate from Texas Tech University. That means they need to know about their bodies. They need to be, know about contemporary and historical movement practices. They need to know about um, how to write about dance, how to talk about it in different ways and for different audiences. They need to know about, how to, uh, about dance and technology. None of these things are on a scale of hierarchy. None of these things have names that are tied to the cultures or peoples that developed the forms or that appropriated the forms um, and then claimed credit for them. That's the importance of vernacular, is that it can lead to the kinds of things I just talked about. Um, making sure we're doing our best by our students. That's what it's about. And that's why it's important to talk about all forms of dance as potentially vernacular and considering them from that perspective. Our guest this week is Professor Genevieve Durham de Cesaro, who is the uh, interim dean of the Talkington College of Visual Performing Arts here at Texas Tech University. And we'd very much like to thank you for being our guest this week on Voices for the Vernacular Music Center. Thank you for having me. It was a true pleasure. Yeah, always great to chat with you, G. And we hope that you'll come back and talk with us again. I'd love to. Voices from the Vernacular Music Center is hosted by Roger Landis and Chris Smith and produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the show notes for images, video and audio playlists, guest bios, and our links to online streaming and reference services. And please remember to like, share, and leave reviews. That's how more listeners hear about us. We tweet at Woke Academic and VMC Voices. Thanks to our guest, Genevieve Durham de Cesaro. Our post-production engineer is Gavin Stockard, and our VVMC administrative coordinator is Heather Belts. Check out her Possibly Haunted podcast. You can find our website at vernacularmusiccenter.org slash podcast. And as always, special thanks to our podcast consultant, SeedPod Productions, at seedpodsound.com. See you next time.